Thanks, Mum. Sorry for giving you a whole book to read, but uh, it is one of the shorter books of the Bible, so uh, you did well. I do feel like you're on disproportionately often as reading when I'm preaching, but maybe I just notice it more. Anyway, morning everyone. Uh, Happy New Year. Hope you've had a good first week of 2024. Maybe uh, a relaxing one, maybe not. Whatever the case is, it's good that we can come together this morning in this place uh, to worship God and learn more about Him. So do keep your Bibles open at Haggai because that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Well, as a boy, uh, I had a small book, I think we've still got it somewhere, uh, I had a small book, probably that by that, about that thick, filled with optical illusions. And I loved looking through it, because there's just something really enticing about optical illusions, isn't there? You know, you look at them, and your brain knows it's one thing, but you see something else. And you have to sort of, you know, work at it to figure out what's going on, And even when you do figure it out, you still see the illusion, but you can appreciate sort of what's behind it all the more because you understand it now. And this morning we find ourselves in the book of Haggai, uh, one of the books of the minor prophets in the Bible. Uh, This is part of a very intermittent series we've been doing on the major messages of the minor prophets. And the book of Haggai is something of an optical illusion. Now, on the surface, it seems to be a book about a temple, the temple even, Uh, the one and only temple dedicated to the one and only true God, Uh, and about the glory of that temple, and about rebuilding that temple. But in truth, when we dig a bit deeper, when we look a bit closer, while it is about all those things, they are really a shadow of the big picture God is getting at in this book. Uh, The real temple that He's pointing to, the real glory He's displaying, uh, and the real foundation of the rebuilding of that temple. So hopefully as we dig into this book, uh, that will all become clear to us. We'll still see the temple and the rebuilding of it that happened so many centuries ago, but we'll see what's really going on behind that as well. So, what's the greatest thing you've ever built? Now, there's a lot of stuff in the world that needs someone to build it, and chances are you've been one of those builders at some point. Uh, maybe it's a sandcastle, uh, a Lego set, a go-kart, a house. And that's just thinking literally. Careers, legacies, innings in cricket, Share portfolios, all kinds of things need building. Well, if you asked an ancient Israelite that question, their answer would surely have been the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, This was a magnificent building. Uh, It had an interior of gold and wood. It was about 20 stories high at its highest point. And it was the place where Israel could know that God was with them. Truly glorious. There's just one problem. Uh, By the time of Haggai, 
The temple was no more. It's gone. It was destroyed by the Babylonians when they came to exile the Israelites. Uh, The pillars were turned to rubble. The walls were knocked down. All the valuables disappeared. Even the Ark of the Covenant, God's former dwelling place, which rested in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. That went, as did all the rest of the gold, probably melted down or in some vault in Persia or hidden away in Babylon. Who knows where? But now Israel has returned to the land. They're back from their exile, they're back in Jerusalem, just as God had promised that He would return them to the land He'd given to their ancestors. And there's no temple. And now we might think that this makes sense if they've just returned to the land, you know, they newly arrived, but by the time of Haggai, they've actually been back for 20 years. 20 years! And there's still no temple dedicated to God. Now consider, it took Solomon seven years to build his magnificent temple. So how can there be now no temple at all? Not even the foundations of one. Nothing for God after 20 years. Uh, If you think back to that great thing that you've built, maybe you can dream up some reasons why you might not want to rebuild. You don't have the resources. Maybe you're worried it will be knocked down again. Maybe you can think of reasons why Israel would have delayed and delayed and delayed rebuilding the temple. But ultimately, God says here, the reason is about their priorities. If you care deeply enough about something, you'll go out of your way to make it happen, won't you? To see that person, to climb that mountain, to build that building. If you really care, if you desire that more than anything else, you'll move heaven and earth to get it done. And Israel, returned from exile by God, didn't care about God enough to rebuild His temple. The people have been saying, chapter 1, verse 2, that time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But then God points out, well, they've rebuilt their own houses, they're planting their farms, they're eating and drinking and buying and selling and earning their wages, they're living their lives but there's always an excuse for them not to rebuild the temple. They can make a house for themselves and treat themselves and look after themselves, but they won't do the same for God because the time's not right. Well, when will it be time? When will they have enough to eat and drink and clothe themselves? When will their wages be high enough? When will they have enough in the bank account to get around to rebuilding the temple? After 20 years, it seems like God's probably got a point when He says in verse 6 that they will never have enough. 
There will never be a point they will reach when they are finally content with all the things that they have in their life, so now they can get around to building the temple. Because the stuff of this world, our material wealth and possessions, the wages we earn, what we eat and drink, what we wear, they just go round and round, don't they? Here one minute, gone the next. And so the Israelites find themselves working harder and harder to try and get enough to be content, but they seem to be going backwards. The harder they try, the less they get out of their work. There's no contentedness to be found in their labour. And we read in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1 that God is the one bringing out this misfortune in response to their lack of obedience. This is God's way of bringing them to their senses. Getting them, as he says twice, to consider their ways. They're trying to take pleasure from the world, from material life. But he says to them, literally in verse 9, he says, you have sown much and harvested little. And this is directly pointing all the way back to Deuteronomy. In chapter 28, verse 38, uh, among a list of curses that would come on Israel if they disobeyed God was this. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little. So, the, the curse that was promised and warned about way back then in the time of Moses is coming on Israel now in the time of Haggai. They will sow much and harvest little. God isn't just waking them up from their spiritual slumber, He's keeping true to His promises in order to do it. It's like He's saying to them, I am still the God of your ancestors, who gave them the law, and you are still my people, who are to follow me. So consider your ways. How are you living, O Israel? How should you be treating me? Who or what should you be putting first in your lives? You're looking to take pleasure in everything but me, yet I'm the one who's given you everything you have. I wonder if God would ask the same questions of you and me. Consider our own lives. Consider your ways at the start of this new year. How are we treating God? Is He first and foremost? Or are we putting Him off? Are we looking to find pleasure in Him or elsewhere? Because if we are looking elsewhere, first and foremost, we'll find ourselves much like Israel, working and working, but always coming short of that goal. Kind of like one of those racing greyhounds chasing after the prey, but never catching it. Round and round we go, never reaching our target, that's always just out of reach. 
Now, we might object. You know, we might say, well, hang on, you know, we're not Israel. We don't have to build a temple in Jerusalem. And that's true. We don't have to build a physical temple in Jerusalem or anywhere else for that matter. But the physical temple was never the point in the first place. It was never an end in itself. The temple served two purposes, which God tells us here in verse 8. First, that he may take pleasure in dwelling with his people, and second, that he would be honoured by it, that he would be glorified, by, uh, that his glory would be displayed in it. And because we live this side of Jesus, the means through which God dwells with his people and is glorified uh, through that dwelling is different. No longer does he dwell in one place, but instead, firstly in Jesus, all God's glory is displayed as he dwelt physically on earth during his life here. And then secondly, afterwards, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in all God's people to make us into his temple. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? God dwells with His people, whom He calls to display His glory. In that passage, Paul is telling his readers to flee from immorality because they are temples of God. If you are among God's chosen people, then you should be showing that to the world in the way that you live. That's the same in 1 Peter 2, the very passage we looked at for our 40th anniversary service back in August. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If we follow Jesus, then we're called to live lives of sacrifice to God because God has given us His Son, has given us life in Him, has chosen us to be His people in His self-sacrificial love and grace towards us. We are called to have God at the forefront of the lives that we're building because God is building us as His temple. So is that what we're doing? Are we living as His living stones, as His temple? Or are we making excuses? Is there always some other priority? some other reason to wait until later to put God first. If we are delaying, well, when is it going to be time? 20 years? When we're dead? A bit late then. We need to consider our ways, just as Israel did. We need to have our eyes fixed on what matters most, God and His glory. And that's where Haggai turns to next in this book.
At the end of chapter 1, we see Israel taking God's call to heart, finally obeying Him, starting work on the temple. But at the start of chapter 2, which is about a month later, we have the dates given to us there, uh, we see that they're feeling disillusioned. Uh, They haven't even laid the foundation yet. They've basically just sort of been digging and preparing to lay it, but already they're wondering if it's really worth it. Uh, the elderly, the one, they, they can remember the old temple and they know that whatever they're building now can't possibly stack up. It can't be as glorious as the old temple. And they're building at a time of year uh, when the Feast of Booths would have been happening and they've had a bad crop. Uh, so they're feeling poor during a festival when they're meant to be celebrating the abundance God has given them, and that festival was also the one that was taking place and being celebrated back when Solomon dedicated the old temple. So it's like they can't escape the legacy of what came before them. And they're feeling down about it, discouraged. How can they compete? How can they compare? And this is easy enough for us to do as well, isn't it? To compare ourselves to others. Our world seems to revolve around us. Social media especially encourages comparison between select snippets of each other's lives, which just makes everyone miserable. And even as a Christian, we can do this when we think about living godly lives. When we think about ourselves as God's temple compared to our brothers and sisters. And maybe when we do that, we don't think we stack up. We look like a a shoddily built temple and we wonder, why even bother? Yeah, that person's doing better than me. I can't match them. I'll just leave it all to them. I don't have anything worthwhile to contribute. We may look at ourselves and see nothing but ruins. Well, what does God say? Be strong, all you people, and work, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. All of us, if we believe in God, we work for God's glory because God is with us and is working in us and through us. That's what he says. For Israel, God made a covenant with them just uh, as they left Egypt and they've experienced part of that covenant just now. But even without a temple being built, God is saying He is with them. Because the point was never the temple. The point was in Him building His people up to display His glory by showing in their lives that He dwelt with them. That He is the God who blesses His people according to His covenant promises. And as far as promises go, He makes another promise here, doesn't He? He says in verse 9, the glory of this house will be greater 
than the glory of the former house. Ah, that would have been quite a promise to consider, wouldn't it? Given the evidence before them, would this really be a house greater than the one Solomon built? But they had no reason to disbelieve God, did they? He'd always proven to be right. So what an encouragement for them to keep working, knowing that at the end of their work, God would be glorified in an even greater way than He was in the first temple. So rather than dwelling on the past, on pointless comparisons, they had to fix their eyes on what God will do in the future and their part in bringing that about. And of course, for us, we know now what they didn't yet know, which was that the means of God's glory being displayed was not in the physical building of the temple, but in the fulfilment of His promise of a Messiah, one who gives everlasting life to those who have faith in the Lord, like those same temple builders. In Jesus, God's glory is displayed. He was glorified on the cross. He was crowned with glory and honour after His resurrection and ascension. And one day, He will return in glory to bring about the new creation. And at that time, His people, His temple, will display His glory as each of us living stones, temples of the Holy Spirit, Proclaim the praises of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has saved us, rescued us, and given us eternal life. The more of us there are, the more glory to God. What an encouragement for us to go about our work in building up the kingdom. His temple. We don't have to worry about comparing ourselves to others. Our concern as followers of Jesus is just to live out lives that glorify God so that we keep reaching the lost, so that we keep building each other up, encouraging each other to hold firm in our faith in the one who saved us. God's work in us, sanctifying us, making us more like Him, might not always look glorious. God's work through us, bringing people into His kingdom, evangelising to those who don't know Him, might not always look glorious. Our lives are never perfect. And in fact, without God, they are a ruin. But God is glorious. And He is the one rebuilding us to be reflections of Jesus, to be His temple, to be displaying His glory. So that we will display His glory most ultimately on the day of His return. Therefore, we should continue our work, which is His work, knowing that God is with us and is at work in us we should have our eyes fixed firmly on Him. That's what Israel did. 
after God's encouragement towards them, after the people have fixed their eyes back on God uh, and have realised the work they're doing, uh, the work He's doing in them to display His glory. And knowing His promises are sure and unbreakable, they do the work. They're ready to lay the foundation of the temple. Everything seems to be going well, finally. But then God comes to His people twice more through Haggai, with one last reminder. Because while we can compare ourselves with others and become disillusioned by our perceived failures, we can also do the opposite, can't we? We can become prideful in how good we are, in what we do for God, unlike other people. And we actually start turning things around to be about glorifying ourselves instead of God. It's easy to try and turn our relationship with God into a transactional one. If I do enough of these things, then God will reward me with this. This is, in fact, exactly what uh, Israel was accused of back in some of the early minor prophets that we looked at years ago in this series. Uh, God tells them in Hosea and Amos that He takes no pleasure in their sacrifices because their hearts are not directed towards Him, but towards themselves. They're doing it for their own sake. And because they kept doing this, and kept turning their hearts further and further away from God, and further towards themselves and their desires, uh, we're told in Ezekiel 10 that the glory of God departs from Israel. So when God says here in chapter 1 that He will be pleased and glorified, or honoured, in His temple, should they repent of their sins and build it, that's a big turnaround. That's an offer of forgiveness and blessing to them. That God would be pleased with them again, and His glory would dwell among them again. And now, here at the end of chapter 2, God is going a step further with that forgiveness and blessing. Through Haggai, he has a discussion with the priests, you know, the most upright uh, among the people of Israel, about the law. And God basically just reminds them how unholy they are. (laughs) He shows them that they don't stack up to Him. They aren't good enough. No matter what they do, they'll fall short of keeping God's law perfectly. And this is how it is for all humans. We all fall short of God. No matter what we offer, it isn't enough to atone for our sin, for our rebellion against Him. But God changes things. Because He concludes this discussion with the priests by saying, from this day on, I will bless you. That is, despite the fact that these priests and these people fall short of Him, God will bless them. He will give them mercy and grace in abundance. He will give them a restored relationship with Him. And it's the same for us. There's no room for pride here. 
Because if we want to compare, look at God and then look at ourselves, what is there to be proud of? We fall so far short of Him, and yet God is willing to give us what we don't deserve, the blessing of relationship with Him, the blessing of a truly good life, an eternal one, under His reign and rule. We don't earn it, He chooses to bless us. That's the relationship God has with His people, unmerited grace and mercy. He's the one acting first. He's choosing people before the creation of the world, making a covenant with His people to bless them, holding firm to it when they fail, changing the relationship between Him and His people, bringing us back to Him, sanctifying us through and through. In Jesus, God has made us righteous before Him. He has made us a holy people, set apart for His possession. That's what He does here in Haggai. And He goes further. In His last word to Haggai, He promises that one day He will shake the world. He will overthrow the powers and authorities that reign and restore the kingdom with a king from David's line, symbolised by Zerubbabel. And he achieved that on the cross, when Jesus, the one from David's line, overcame the power of sin and darkness, the one who rules the world as a sacrifice for sin. And God will complete that restoration in full on the day Jesus returns to bring about His reign of righteousness eternally. So when Israel sets about building the temple, after God speaks to them through Haggai, they have in mind these promises and assurances. When they look at the temple, they can remember the day they laid its foundation as the day on which God changed their lives, blessing them and promising them a new hope to come. They can see how God woke them up from their sin turn their eyes back towards Him, towards His glory, and promised a restored, magnified relationship with Him eternally. And we can do the same, but even greater. Because as we, through God, build the temple that is the church, which is in turn made up of the living stones that we are, being built up as temples by God, we too can look back at the foundation laid by Jesus as the proof of God's promises, as the means through which God has woken us up from our sin, has turned our eyes back towards Him and has displayed and promised us a restored, magnified relationship with Him in glory eternally. So let us do that. Let us hear God calling us to examine our lives, to examine whether He is our first priority. Let us set about building His church and in turn being built by Him through the Spirit that dwells in us into sanctified reflections of His glory. Let us not lose heart, but know that He is with us.
and is our foundation for life as he continues rebuilding his people towards eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for being uh, the God who grants mercy so freely, so willingly to people like us, to people who deserve punishment for rebellion against you, but can instead know your overwhelming grace to us. Lord, we confess that it's easy for us to get distracted from you, to fail to put you first and foremost in our lives. So help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you, to know that everything we have comes from you, and to not seek, Lord, after pleasure in this world above you, but instead to find it in you above all. Knowing that you, Lord, are pleased to dwell with us, and to display your glory to us in Jesus and through us as your temple. Lord, help us to work for your glory, knowing the greatness of your coming kingdom, of the eternal life on offer for all who trust in you. Lord, help us to prioritise the building of your kingdom, even as you rebuild us in our brokenness through the work of your Spirit. Thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sake, through whom we can have restored relationship with you. Help us, Lord, also not to become prideful in our work, but instead to remember that you are the one who has worked to change our relationship with you, who has brought us to you and has offered the hope that we have in you. For all this, we thank you and ask that you would help us, Lord, by your Spirit, to always be praising your name for your glory because of what you've done. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.